Hello, hello, Kristen here. Just wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded before the podcast name change. If you hear any old terminology, that's why. Thank you for listening. Hello, hello, notable women. I hope that you're having a really fab day. And I'm glad you're taking some time to listen to this amazing interview with Dean Jennifer Cole. Usually I just call her Jen Cole. Like it's her first name, Jen and Cole, Jen Cole. And I will call her that throughout the interview. Although I did give her a new nickname at the end. Gotta listen to the episode to hear what that one is. It's rather entertaining, in my opinion. And I love Jen Cole. She is one of the most delightful human beings that has ever walked the face of the planet. And in this episode, we dive into her career working in student affairs and also her love, which is being creative through pottery, quilting, and sewing. We talk about how her mother taught her these things, and her mother just recently passed away within the past year. We talk about her wedding dress and how she used her creativity to use her mother's dress for her own wedding. It's a really fabulous interview, and I hope that you enjoy it. I'll be back at the end of the episode. Catch you on the flip side. Welcome to the Notable Woman Podcast. Today's interview is with the amazing, fabulous, and wonderful Jennifer Cole, Jen Cole, the Associate Dean of Academic Advising at Gettysburg College. I will probably often call her Dean Cole throughout this interview because it entertains me, and that's the main point of my life. But welcome to the podcast, Jen. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This is so exciting. Yay, so fun. So Jen's one of my favorite people on the planet. We went to college together, and she is just a joy, and everyone who knows her loves her, so I'm so happy to have her here. Oh, I feel all those things about you, too. Oh, you're very, very sweet. Jen and I were actually class officers together in college. That's our level of nerdiness. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I live in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and I've been the... Associate Dean of Academic Advising at Gettysburg College for seven years. Prior to that, I was the Assistant Dean. I was promoted after two years. And I've worked in this field supporting college students academically for about 11 and a half, 12 years professionally. And before that, I was in grad school and college. And I really enjoy working with college students. I think that, and especially in this field, every day is different. Every problem is different. Every student is different. There's certainly patterns to what I do, but as trends change, as campus culture changes, there's all kinds of interesting new issues to deal with, problems to solve, and it's just fascinating work, and it continues to challenge me and keep me interested. So that's what I do. That's who I am, nine to five most days. Amazing. Now, a question for you. What would be something that you see has affected college students throughout your entire tenure working in this field? So something that's more of a constant? That's a really good question. I think things like stress and mental health and finding healthy ways to cope with that. And when you are not using healthy ways to cope with that stress, the consequences of the behaviors I think that we've become, as a society, so much more constantly tuned in to technology. I think that the pressures facing college students 
whether they're traditional age college students or non-traditional age college students or online students, we all have a million things going on in our lives and balancing all of that at the same time is incredibly stressful. So we look for ways to cope with that. Sometimes it's cutting corners. Sometimes it's, you know, looking for a way to find some relief from that stress and pressure. And if you have any pre-existing issues like mental health issues or health issues, or let's say things are not so great in your family or at home, that only makes things harder. So I think that in all the places that I've worked and all the students that I work with, that's something that is consistent throughout. That is a really excellent point. I was just kind of thinking as you were talking about when back when we were in college that it was not easy to call home, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think you could buy a plan of some kind so you could use your phone to call long distance. But cell phones were not really common. And if they were, they were, you know, as big as my shoe. <laughs> Obviously, it's very hard to move away from home. And there's a lot of stress around that. But there is something nice about not being constantly tuned in. Right. I know that when I worked with college students, one of the problems that we often had was that parents would be calling them or texting on their cell phone all the time. Oh my goodness, yes. And in acting classes, you're supposed to be paying attention or acting and not texting your mom or dad. And I think that's a really unique new problem to that constantly being tuned in is that for us, we had to disconnect from our parents. Maybe some had their parents live closer to campus or something like that, but disconnecting was sort of part of it. And you could kind of disconnect, but now you absolutely right. have to actively disconnect, right? making it a choice, which is much, much more difficult to make. Right. And that disconnection is really important developmentally. When you're growing up, your parents make decisions for you. They tell you the right thing to do. And over time, we all internalize that voice. We internalize that advice. But if you don't have that disconnection, you don't practice relying on that internal voice because someone else is always there to make the decisions for you or to tell you what to do. Even though you probably would make the right decision, you would make a fine decision. You would do what your parents, your family's values have instilled in you to do. You would trust your own judgment and your own wisdom in the back of your mind. You would hear that voice of your parents. But if you don't disconnect, you don't have the chance to practice that and realize that you have that voice. So yeah, it's tricky. And I can see also, you know, one, it's like a muscle that you have to develop that occasionally you're going to make the wrong choices, but you keep doing it so that eventually you make the right ones. And that decision making muscle is nice and strong. And then also, I think that it's problematic that if you don't disconnect and your parents, family, friends, whoever are still making all those decisions for you, then when there are consequences, it gets very murky about where those consequences lie. I mean, they lie on you because it's your life. But what have you learned? That's right. Complicated. Right. And one of the other things that can be tricky is if you're constantly relying on asking someone else for help, for advice, what to do, and you're not trusting your own inner voice and what you've shaped it to be, you can end up doing things that aren't your own decision. You can end up making choices that you don't really want to make because you're relying too heavily on someone else to help you make those decisions. Whereas if you internalize that voice and you've got it there to rely on if you need it, you have the opportunity to shape your own decisions, your own values as well. So then you're making healthier choices that are right for you as a person, as opposed to the people you're asking. Very good points. And good points for not just college students, but really anyone as they come into their own. so true. It's so true. I would certainly say that I know people who, you know, maybe got married really young and went straight from their parents to 
their partner and had a hard time developing that inner voice, that muscle, making those decisions. And then eventually most people end up getting to the point in their life where they realize that they have to make them, but it would be so much easier if they were able to make them earlier. Absolutely. And we're not talking big, huge life decisions. Sometimes it's something as simple as, should I take section A or section B of this course? It's a different professor. It meets at a different time. What should I do? Sometimes it can be decisions that are that inconsequential. And sometimes it's bigger things like, should I change my major to something that I'm more interested in? Or should I stick with this major that my parents think I should pursue? It can really run the gamut of different types of things that we're dealing with. And that's just two examples that I deal with on a regular basis. Interesting stuff. Now, I would love to know also, given that you've had such a long standing, I don't mean to say long, like we're 100 years old, by the way, that's not my point. (laughs) But since you have been almost even like through a generational change now with students that you're dealing with, what would you say is a trend that is new, very new with this current group of students that you're working with? Hmm. Interesting. I don't know if I have an answer for that. (laughs) That's good. That's good. I think that that means that, you know, you hear a lot of stuff from a lot of people about how different this generation is from that generation, how you work with them. But if you as a professional feel like you basically work with them the same way and the commonalities are greater than the differences, I think that's pretty fascinating too. Yeah. The changes that I see are more in myself. As I get older and as I get more seasoned as a professional, I change how I work with students. But not really, it's the same thing. I mean, there's certain trends that are so prevalent in our society that students are so much more career focused. They come into college rather than seeing it as an opportunity for learning and having new experiences. They're coming into it as a necessary stepping stone to get to where they want to be. And they already have their eyes on that as opposed to having their eyes on being right in school. But that's something that I've seen even since we were in school. Really? I think that's interesting. I feel like it's an economy change because we grew up during uh, years of prosperity in the United States. And then just Pretty soon after I was out of grad school, not immediately, I had a few years out before the economy's bottom fell out and we had the recession. But I feel like students that grew up during the recession are much more focused on career, whereas I was much more focused on finding something that made me happy. I was too. But I think about how many of the women that we went to school with were very driven to particular career paths in the sciences. You know, there was a big divide, science, non-science, or business students. I think that... Nurses. Exactly. Yeah. So, so much was profession-focused or field-focused when we were in school. I think folks that majored in the humanities or took a lot of classes in the humanities are so much more or so much less career-focused. We're so fascinated by learning in general and that experience. But a lot of the people that we started school with and were in school with were very profession focused. Mm-hmm. And maybe that, that was a good point. And it could be a part of the type of school we went to also. We had a lot of pre-professional programs, nursing, teaching, psychology, social work, even the sciences. So it could be a factor too. Nice point. Nice point, Teen Cole. I appreciate that. <laughs> so now switching gears slightly, you have a lot of interesting hobbies that you do that are quite creative. Can you tell me a little bit about what you like to do in your spare time? I would love to talk about this. So I am Dean Cole from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, and you know, whenever I have work to do on the weekends and evenings too. But outside of that, I find myself 
drawn to really creative hobbies. So things like pottery. I have been really immersed in working with clay over the last several years. Prior to that and still continuing, I am really into sewing. I was actually doing some sewing this morning. And these are things that I think I put on the back shelf for a long time when I was in college and grad school. I didn't have time for these things and I wasn't studying any of the visual arts when I was in college, although I did take an intro to drawing class, which I loved. They were just put on the back shelf. I mean, who has a grad school? Who has time for any hobbies in grad school? So when I got out of grad school and I was working, I really had this hole in my life and was trying to figure out what that was and how to fill it. Suddenly, I didn't have homework to do. I didn't have papers to write. I didn't have internships that took up all of my free time. And so that's when I started sewing. I was helping my mom organize her sewing things one day. And I thought, hmm, well, why not take this up? And my mother had an extra sewing machine. And so she was working with me on that. And I started making quilts. And it was really kind of fun to be able to share that with my mom. But it was such a neat thing to something brand new. I, I guess I've just always loved learning. And that was an extension of my learning experience. And I have to say that I started out, I didn't have any formal training in sewing other than home ec in, I think, seventh grade where we had to sew aprons. So I knew the parts of the sewing machine and things like that, but I never learned how to read a pattern and things like that. So my mom did a lot of kind of teaching on the fly, and I did a lot of figuring things out on my own. And that's been a really amazing hobby over the years. And I've learned so much just about life and about myself as a professional. It's weird, you know, I, I learn about myself as a professional through my hobbies, but um, I can't wait until the next job interview I have to go on because when people ask, what hobbies do you have? What do you do outside of work to relax and things like that? And be like, well, you know, I love to do all these things. And they've actually taught me a whole lot about the work that I do nine to five. I think about making a quilt and the process. And when I first started doing this, I was kind of sloppy. I didn't always iron all of the pieces. I didn't cut super straight. I just thought, eh, it's okay. I'll fix it. It'll all come together. Okay. But it doesn't. <laughs> and the slower you go and the more patience you have with the planning stages, the better the final product comes out. And that's such a an easy lesson, right? And it's something that makes perfect common sense. But when you slow down and you have to do that kind of work and you learn that lesson in a context outside of your daily work or your daily life, it can reinforce that lesson in a different way. So I think about that often that, all right, if I slow down and I'm more careful at this stage, my end product will be better. And that comes into play when I'm planning programs, when I'm developing new processes at work, when I'm working with committees. The more time you take and the more deliberate and careful you are at the very beginning planning stages, the better things will be in the end. You know, as a planner, manager, and organizer, I love hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me incredibly happy. And I think that, that is a really interesting life lesson to have learned in a hobby. And I've often found that I'm really bad at the sort of things you described because I have very little patience. Mm -hmm. And I think that at some point, I did 
uh, I was working on, I forget what show I was working on. I think maybe it was Love's Labor's Lost. And my entire crew was uh, knitting and crocheting. Oh, wow. And so I took it up and learned it from them. And it really was very useful to have something to do with my hands when I was backstage on a show, Mm -hmm. when sometimes you're just sitting around half an hour for something you got to do for five minutes, and then you wait another half an hour to do some other (laughs) thing you got to do for two minutes. Yeah. So it was really useful. But I always found that my problems that I have in life would come up in my knitting and crocheting, which is one, not having a lot of patience. And two, having a lot of tension, mm. which is bad in both of those activities that you're trying to like wrestle the knitting needles in together. <laughs> it just doesn't. It's so true. It doesn't quite work. And, you know, now having the last couple of years, having had this experience with pottery and by that, I mean, throwing on the wheel. That's what I really like to do. Although there's a lot of different things you can do with clay. I am blown away by the lessons, the life lessons that come out of this on a regular basis. Because when you are making a piece on the wheel, the very first thing that you have to do with a lump of clay is you have to center it. And that in itself is a really tremendous experience and a tremendous lesson because you think so often when you're starting something, we jump into it without knowing where we are, knowing who we are, without establishing our own values and our own goals and that's kind of centering you know whenever you start something you want to center you want to know who you are what your values are before you jump in and and try something new and that's just such a beautiful lesson and that's how I start every single piece that I make on the wheel you center it and then the process of making something involves pressure and when you're making something on the wheel I was just teaching a lesson last night, and when I'm teaching, I really try to explain things in words and show at the same time and so that people can understand things differently. And what I was talking about is how you always have to have two hands on the clay, always. And having the two hands there helps to balance the pressure because you're using both hands and putting pressure with both hands. And that has to be balanced. The pressure has to come from both sides. Because if you push too hard with one hand, it's going to collapse one way. And if you push too hard with the other hand, it'll collapse the other way. So it's a very delicate balance. And I think that the idea of finding that right balance of pressure is really important in life. And it's so funny because that's a student affairs theory, (laughs) the idea of challenge and support, having appropriate challenge so that you're not stagnating. But having enough support so that you can go outside of your comfort zone and be challenged, but not in a way that's too challenging that you break down because you can't do it. So fascinating how it all comes full circle. One of my favorite educational psychologists is Vygotsky Mm -hmm. for that whole reason, the zone of proximal proximal development. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) I geek out over that all the time. Yep. The concept of scaffolding and you know, you have to do things within your abilities or you experience stress. Yeah. Not that you can't do things outside of what you currently can do, but there would be, for example, if someone sat me down at a pottery wheel and said, do something, I would cry and say, bring Jen Cole, I can't, because that would be outside. So I love that. I think that's amazing. And how really, really beautiful that your mom was able to teach yes. you sewing. 
Yes, that was pretty amazing. The sewing machine that I have used the whole time I've been sewing was my mother's old sewing machine that my father actually gave her for Christmas the first year that they were married. And it is an old clunk of a sewing machine, super heavy, nothing electronic, all levers and things like that. But it's wonderful. It's very basic and it does everything I needed to do. Well, my mother passed away last February, so almost a year ago. And I have her newer sewing machine now too. And I sat down this morning for the first time with that newer sewing machine. And it was really kind of an odd experience because sewing was something that we've shared together for so long. And to sit there with her machine without her, it was, it was a little eerie, but it's kind of neat. But of course, there's some piece missing from her sewing machine, so I couldn't get it to work. So I have to take care of that. That is, I think, interesting symbolism yeah. there. Now, you recently got married, right? You're a married lady now. I did. Now, and you wore your mother's wedding dress. Beautifully redesigned for you. How did you go about doing that? Well... I had always wanted to wear my mother's wedding dress, even before she died. I had this adorable picture of me, probably about five years old, wearing her dress and her veil. And I just, I love that idea of, well, A, not spending a boatload of money on a wedding dress, but B, honoring where you came from. And I have had a wonderful relationship with my mother my whole life. My parents had a relatively happy marriage as, as far as I can tell and my mother and has been an important person in my life so I love that idea it was also a really pretty dress and my mom was not super far off from the size that I am now when she got married so being a sewer I had an idea okay I need to have it let out a little bit but not so much that it's going to end up remaking the whole dress and here are the scenes and you know what can be done realistically so I found a local seamstress and brought it in and talked to them about what I wanted to do and they were super excited to do it with me so the first step was cleaning the dress because it actually hadn't been cleaned after my parents wedding 40 something years ago and it had some crazy stains on it. So first they cleaned it. And I don't know what kind of magic material this dress is made of, but all of these stains came out with just water. They didn't even need to use any kind of special soap or anything like that. So that was a really good sign that everything came out really easily. And then we put the dress on and saw what needed to be done. And my parents were married in the 1970s, so it was a very 1970s dress. It had long bell sleeves that were super flowy and really, really very dated. So we took the sleeves off, and we actually used the fabric from the sleeves to make new sleeves. I wanted three-quarter length sleeves. So we did that. We took off the train because I didn't really need a train. But the basic structure of the dress, we kept the same. And I was shocked, shocked by how inexpensive the whole process was. I mean, some people pay thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars for wedding dresses and then have the alterations. But I only paid for the cleaning and the alterations, and it was less than $300. And it was this beautiful, amazing 
super memorable and meaningful dress and experience. I mean, I took one of my girlfriends with me every time I had a fitting to take pictures and I have it all in my scrapbook. And it was just really incredible. And the women who were there at the seamstress shop who did the cleaning and all of the sewing and were there with me through all the fittings were just incredible. And when I finally had to pay and pick up the dress and bring it home, I cried. And and then they told me how much it cost. And I, <laughs> I said to them, Oh my God, are you kidding? And they thought I was mad and they thought I was upset that it was more than I wanted it to be. And I was shocked that it was way less than I thought it would be. And then they wouldn't accept tips. And I was like, no, you have to accept a tip. And they said, no. And so I said, well, then I have to give you hugs. And so I gave them all hugs and they're just amazing. And the whole process was really incredible. And I don't know, not everyone is going to be able to come to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania and go to Suzanne's bridal shop to have their stuff done. But if you have the opportunity, not just for a wedding, but for any kind of event to wear something or remake something that is meaningful to you, I highly encourage you to do it because it just makes it very special. Well, and you looked absolutely beautiful. Oh, thank you. I really just want to wear that dress all the time. All the time. As you should. I agree. Just once a week. Go ahead and put it on for dinner. My husband's going to come home from work and see me in this dress and think I'm nuts. And, oh, well, he's stuck (laughs) with me now. He is. Now, (laughs) how is married life? How are you guys enjoying it? Uh, Well, we were living together for many, many years before we got married. So not a whole lot different, honestly. Although we do every once in a while like to throw our vows in each other's faces. (laughs) Like, you promised you would love me. You promised this. You And then, oh my goodness, we were so silly. So we wrote our own vows for the wedding and which is a lovely, wonderful idea. And I remember your wedding and your wedding vows. And I hope that you are still making like breakfast every once in a while, because I remember that was in your vows. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> but when we wrote our vows, we wrote them, you know, we were editing them in a Google Doc or something like that. And we finally got them how we wanted them. We thought, okay, great, perfect. We sent them to our officiant. And then what we hadn't done, though, is read them out loud. And there's a big difference between reading something on the screen or on a piece of paper and reading something out loud. So during our ceremony, the officiant would say the vows and ask us to repeat after her. And she got to this one line and she said it. And I turned to her and I said, what? (laughs) In the middle of the ceremony, (laughs) and I'm supposed to be repeating these vows to my husband. And the thing that we wrote apparently was that I promised to fill your days with sunshine. And I think that's something that looks really nice on paper, but when you have to say it out loud in front of a bunch of family and friends and to the person that you're going to marry, that and that is not me to begin with, but I don't think I've ever promised to fill someone's days with sunshine, but now I did. My husband and I promised to fill each other's days with sunshine. It was in the vows. Well, I can say you, you fill my days with oh, sunshine. Thank you. But, you know, if I were going to say that kind of thing, oh, it's hysterical, hysterical. Everyone (laughs) in the audience is laughing. And the officiant said, I promise I will show you right here on my paper. I copied and pasted from the document you sent me. (laughs) (laughs) That is great. Yeah, that is so great. Well, I'd love to shift gears with you for a second and ask some of my favorite questions that I ask everybody. 
what would you say is the biggest assumption that people make about you? Hmm. That's really hard to answer. I don't know. What assumptions do you make about me? Huh. <laughs> oh, what would I say? I would, assumptions I make about Jen Cole. I think I would say either that you're perfect or that you're always happy. Mm, okay. Those are good assumptions. I think some of the other things that people would assume about me are that I'm super organized and I have all my stuff together because I do a lot. I get a lot done. My life is busy, but I am not super organized. I have certain systems that help, but even within those systems, I get lazy or, or I have to kind of redo it. So I am not the most organized person on the planet. My husband knows that, but a lot of the people that I work with or that I'm involved with in different community things have no idea. Good to know. I would have definitely thought <laughs> you very organized. No, not at all. Now, what would you say is one takeaway you would love for people to get from listening to this podcast episode? I want to talk a little bit about creativity. One of the things, the pottery studio that I'm involved with, we do pottery stuff, but we also do art. We do paintings and we do a lot of those paint-along nights and they're wonderful. And what's so frustrating to me when I'm at those paint along nights is hearing people talk about how bad they are at things. They talk about, you know, if you've ever gone to one of these, just listen, don't say anything, but listen for the first 10 minutes. I'm so bad at this. This is awful. Oh, look at this. This is so terrible. I love yours so much better than I love mine. And that always frustrates me because creativity is not supposed to be something that makes you feel bad about yourself. And I think that really checking yourself when you're doing anything fun, creative, and trying something new, being patient with yourself and watching yourself talk, making sure that you are talking yourself up rather than talking yourself down, encouraging yourself, wow, look at this. This is my first time trying this. And, you know, I'm doing awesome. And I've never done this before. This is so awesome that I'm willing to try this. And look how great this is, but I've never done this before. And I'm really enjoying myself. I think that talking to yourself in a really positive way and watching when you're talking to yourself in negative ways can be really important. Preach. I mm. agree 100%. Yeah. Have you ever been to one of those paint night kind of things? You know, they're I see they're super big in the suburban lands. I have not seen anything like that in New York mm, City. Interesting. The big thing we have is the escape the room thing. Yes. Have you seen that? Mm -hmm. I went to one in Pittsburgh. That's fine. I've not gone to one, but I would say if there's a super trendy thing in the city right now, that would be what it is. Mm. We do not have coach bingo. I've seen a lot of people do that too in the suburbs. <laughs> and I don't understand why we can't. Coach bingo or Longaburger basket bingo. That's big in the suburbs, yeah. too. We don't have any of that. Ugh, bummer. You know, but I did go to a New Orleans restaurant the other night. So, you know, I got all the food you can possibly that's imagine. Amazing. So that's amazing. We nice. don't even have an Indian restaurant but, in Gettysburg. <laughs> oh, dear. We have, you know, like probably 30 or 40 just within a mile of where I live. So, yeah, New York City, we're great for food. We're great for food and culture. But we don't got Coach Bingo. Ah, there's problem. <laughs> now, I know you love to read just like mm -hmm. me. So I'm expecting a really fab answer here. 
but what book would you love to recommend to the Notable Woman audience? Oh my goodness, this is hard because I've actually already read six books so far this year, and it's only the beginning of January. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's impressively. I know. I have not gotten a lot of sleep in the last couple of weeks because I'll start a book and then it's so good and I end up staying up all night reading it. So the one that I read, I, I'm really into novels right now. So I can't say that I have like a super, <laughs> super practical book to recommend, but I read The Snow Child. I can't remember the author's name at this point in time. And it was beautiful. It was just so incredible. It was a novel set in the 1920s in Alaska. And it's a young couple, no, not young, an older couple who move up there. They decide to kind of just start their own life away from their family. They've realized that they can't have children, even though they very much want to have children. And this young girl kind of appears in the wilderness and they end up sort of helping her out and she becomes very much part of their family. But it's really a beautifully written piece. So I recommend that. And then the last book that I read was In the Time of the Butterflies by Julia Alvarez. And that was just incredible, really, really beautiful characters. It's about four sisters in the Dominican Republic during Trujillo's reign. And it's a little political, but a lot of family dynamics and a lot of relationship dynamics and, and things like that. It was just really incredible. Awesome. I will put links to both of those <laughs> books in the show notes. Now, I really, really, really adore you. I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk. And thank you so much for being you on the show. You're so welcome. And I adore you as well, Kristen Downs. Jen Cole is my love. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I really, really enjoyed talking to Jen about all these wonderful things that she does so well and that make her a better person. So you might have something that you love to do that's your job. But if you have something else, some creative hobby, it often adds to what you do as a person. So don't think that you can't fit these things in because you can. And they are going to help you. It's not losing focus on your one big thing. It's helping to add to that. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll see you again next week. Bye for now.